Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Boo's Podcast. My name is Sam and unfortunately for today I am not joined by Ollie. It's a couple days after her wedding and I thought I would just let her relax, chill out with how stressful the wedding was, which was amazing. I can't wait to talk to you guys about it with her when she gets back. Um, But for this week, you're just going to have me, so sorry. solo i thought i would tell you guys one of my favorite stories well not really favorite because it's a really really messed up story but i think you guys will enjoy it and it actually inspired one of my favorite movies of all time silence of the lambs i even have a death's head hawk moth um in reference to the movie and it's one of my all-time favorite tattoos so i thought why not do this story trigger warning this story involves a lot of rape it involves a lot of torture so i do apologize for that i just wanted to give you guys the heads up from the top so you guys aren't surprised by it and get mad at me later um so my resources for the story was a seller of horror by ken Englade. i'm just gonna say it now if you choose to read this book it's writing did not age well at all it's problematic at times the timeline in the book is extremely jumbled Um, It took me months of shifting through a bunch of information just to kind of give you guys a good, concise timeline. So I'm sorry if you guys still get lost. I tried my hardest to make this as easy to follow as possible. But if you have any complaints, you can send them to boozepodcast at (laughs) gmail.com. Please don't complain. Um, I'm going to be talking about basement killer Gary Heidnick. Now, not to open this can of worms so early on, but I feel like Gary isn't talked about too often because all of his victims were African-American women. They were either mentally handicapped or sex workers. So just right from the top, they didn't get the coverage that they should have gotten. They didn't get it till after all this awful stuff happened to them. So let's begin because this is going to be a very, very long episode. Heidnick was born in Ohio in November of 1943. A year and a half later, his mother gave birth to his son, Terry. His father, Michael, was a tool and dye maker. His mother, Ellen, was a beautician. When Gary was two, his parents split. His mother would marry two more times. On May 30th in 1970, riddled with bone cancer and constantly battling her alcoholism, she drank a bottle of muric chloride, a chemical commonly found in beauty shops. Gary spread her ashes over the Niagara Falls. When the boys were old enough to start school, they went to go live with their father and their new stepmother. Both boys said their father was a very strict, abusive, angry man. Heidnick always accused his father of being abusive. Heidnick repeatedly wet the bed, so his father one day took his soiled sheets and hung them outside their two-story window so everyone could see. He also recounted that sometimes his father would hang him outside the window by only his ankles, 20 feet off the ground. Another time, when Gary was upset with both boys, he painted a bullseye on the seat of both boys' pants and sent them to school so they could be kicked and hit by other children. On good terms, Gary would describe his father as a cold fish. 
His father denied any of these accusations. He said they grew up in an average household. His father was quoted about Gary saying he was an average kid. He went to school, played basketball like the other kids, but Jesus, he must have lost his buttons. When Gary was in middle school, he fell out of a tree and flat on the crown of his head. This caused him to become deformed and the children at school would make fun of him and call him football head. After the fall, Heidnik's brother Terry said his personality began to change. When Heidnik was in the ninth grade, Michael scraped up enough money to send him to military school. Gary had a big interest in the military, so he was excited at the chance to go. He chose Staunton Military Academy in Virginia. At the time, it was considered a prestigious school. It was here that Gary made his first of many shrink visits. For an unknown reason, he dropped out at the end of his junior year. He went back to his father's where he enrolled in East Lake North High School. Six weeks later, he switched to East High School. He lasted a month at that school before dropping out altogether and just joining the army. After boot camp, he asked to be a military police. He was turned down. The minimum age requirement for MPs was 19, and at this point, Gary had just turned 18, so he was too young. So the military made him a hospital corpsman. He was shipped off to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas for training. And this location is actually like 15, 20 minutes away from my house. I pass it constantly. I've actually been there. It's, it's a big place and it kind of makes my skin crawl knowing he was so close at one point to where I would reside. Being a medic, he had... Being a medic, he had way more money than he was accustomed to. He began to hold his pay. He would loan it to other soldiers and then tack on an interest. And please apologize my pronunciation, um, but on May 1962, he was sent to Lonstuhl, Germany, where he earned his GED in a few weeks, and then something happened. After three months of arriving on August 25th, 1962, he went to see a doctor. He had dizzy spells, headaches, blurred vision, and was constantly nauseous. His doctors even noted he had a weird tick. He would jerk his head suddenly and at random times. On October 2nd, two months after he claimed his sickness, he told a doctor he was seeing things. A neurologist examined him and noted that Gary was showing signs of schizophrenia. On January 30th, 1963, Gary was honorably discharged. He had only served 14 months of his 36th month enlistment. He was given 100% disability through the military, earning him about $2,000 a month. So Heidnick settled in Philadelphia and became a licensed medical nurse, earning his state certification. He also enrolled in the University of Philadelphia. There he earned credits in chemistry, anthropology, history, sociology, biology, and a few other subjects. He went to work at the University of Philadelphia's hospital and started training as a psychiatric nurse. He never finished the course because he was kicked out for his poor behavior and crappy attitude. By the time Gary had been stationed in Lotstool, to the time he was finally caught, he would have been in and out of different hospitals for his mental health 21 times. He would have tried to attempt suicide 13 times. He tried a head-on collision with a truck. He broke a light bulb and swallowed the glass shards, and he even tried to OD on his medication. His brother, Terry, also suffered from mental health issues and tried to attempt as well. Gary was known to go mute. He would refuse to talk to staff and anyone around him, and some instances lasted up to three weeks or more while he was committed into psychiatric hospitals with doctors, and you'll find out later even in prison hospitals. In December of 1968, he was re-admitted into a hospital after attacking Terry. He hit his brother over the head with a wooden plank. Heidnik went to visit his brother in the hospital. When Terry asked him what he would do if he was to have accidentally have killed him, Heidnik answered a little too literally. 
I would have out your body in the bathtub and pour acid over it to dissolve the bones. I would have had, had to be careful while mixing the acid though, because I wouldn't want to damage the drain pipes. I would leave you there to soak for two to three days. And if there was any big bones left, I'd saw them up and put them in the trash compactor. Then I'd redistribute them around the neighborhood in various trash cans. Terry said after that he had nightmares of Gary for a long, long time. In the spring of 1971, Gary, who had never once been religious, claimed he had been visited by the Almighty. Okay, dude. He was told he had to go back to Philadelphia and start a new church. Apparently, the Almighty also gave him stock market tips. Which didn't go so well since he invested in a sketchy electronic shop called Crazy Eddie's and lost about $158,000. While in treatment at a mental hospital, he applied to in incorporate the United Church of Ministers of God. It was approved on October 12, 1971. Overnight, he became a bishop. He initially invested $1,500 into the church, and over 15 years, its account ended up reaching $545,000. When he wasn't in hospitals, he held services regularly that people would attend. In 1976, Gary was renting out an apartment to Robert Rogers and his girlfriend. There was an argument, so Gary shut off all the electricity in the building. When Robert came home, he went to go investigate. The door was locked, so he had to climb through a window. Inside, Gary greeted him with a rifle and a pistol by his side. He grabbed the pistol and told Robert, I'm going to kill you and say it was a robber. He aimed it at Robert's face and pulled the trigger. Robert turned his head just at the right time, and the bullet only grazed his cheek. From there, he was able to talk Gary out of it, which blows my mind that you could talk someone who just attempted to kill you down from this anger and angst. Like, incredible. Heidnick was charged with aggravated assault, carrying a pistol without a license, and carrying a firearm in the streets, but the charges were dropped a week later. After this incident, he moved in with Anita Davidson. She was unable to read or write, and her IQ was at 49. Unfortunately, she ended up pregnant by Heidnick. Heidnick insisted he treat her at home, so she received no outside care. A month before the baby was due, Anita's sister thankfully came with police escorts and took her away. Gary had had her on a strict eating regimen, so she had only gained 5 pounds during her pregnancy. Due to this, as soon as the baby was born, she was put in a foster home. Which is very, very sad, but at least she was away from Heidnick and all the awfulness that I could, I can't even imagine what he would have done to her. A few weeks later, Anita and Heidnick went to Selena Grove Center, an institute for the mentally disabled. They went to visit Anita's other sister, Alberta. She was signed out for a short-term visit. When she didn't return nine days later, a staff member came with police escorts to bring her back. Alberta was found cowering in an unused closet in the basement. She was trembling violently. She showed signs of being sexually assaulted. Gary denied ever holding her captive or forcing her into sexual acts, but they took him to court on November 1978, and he was sentenced to only three to seven years. Halfway through his sentence, he went mute. When asked why, he wrote down to doctors, the devil shoved cookies down my throat. When a doctor checked his throat and reported there was nothing down his throat, he wrote, pray for eyes. Heidnick thought he was real funny. Heidnick bounced around to half a dozen different prison hospitals over the course of his sentence. He never faced a day of hard time, and he was released only after five years. Which blows my mind that someone who kidnapped and sexually assaulted someone and was holding them captive in a closet only serves five years. Excuse me? 
That's ridiculous. After his release, he went searching for Anjanita, but he could not find her. Police were also unable to find her and speculated Heidenick had murdered her and buried her in an unknown location. At some point between October 1985 and April 1986, Betty Disto saw an ad in the paper for a pen pal. She wrote back and forth to Heidnik for two years before they got married, despite her mother begging her not to go because she did not know this man. Now, up to this point in these two years of them writing back and forth, they had never met in person. On September 29th, 1985, with her new visa in hand, she flew to finally meet Heidnik and get married. On October 3rd, they were married, not even a week later. You know, she hadn't even recovered from jet lag and they were already tying the knot. In the beginning, like most abusers, he treated her like a princess. But soon after the marriage, she came home to find him in bed with three other women. She was horrified. After this incident, he then began to physically, sexually, and mentally abuse her. He'd punch her, make her stand in a corner for up to 12 hours a day, starve her, force her to watch him have sex with other women, and then make her cook for them after their activities. He threatened to kill her if she ever tried to run away. Three and a half months later, Betty fled. She told Heidnik she was going out shopping, but she had hidden some bags, and as soon as she had the chance, she took those bags and she just left. She reported Heidnik to the cops for assault and rape, but when she discovered she was pregnant, out of fear, she failed to appear at the preliminary hearing, so charges were dropped. On September 15th, she delivered a baby boy named Jesse John. She sent Heidnik a postcard telling him the news and left it to that. Eventually, she did take him to court for child support, and at this point in time, when he was going to court hearings for child support, he had four women in his basement that he was torturing and raping daily. So now begins the story of one of the most horrific things I have ever heard. On November 26, 1986, Josefina Rivera had just had an argument with her boyfriend. She had gone back to apologize an hour later, but they had begun arguing again, so she stormed out. Because tomorrow was Thanksgiving, she didn't have a lot to be thankful for at the moment. She was just so upset and over this argument where something so minuscule. She decided she would start her work early. It was cold in Philadelphia that night, and she hugged her windbreaker tightly to her for warmth. Josefina had never seemed to have trouble attracting men, but tonight was especially slow. With the freezing temperature, she was getting desperate. Then she sought a brand new pewter over white Cadillac. With the window rolled down, Heidnik asked her, You hustling? Yeah, Josefina responded. She then got in the Cadillac, and they drove off. Inside his home, she noticed a 1971 Rolls-Royce, and that the walls of his kitchen were meticulously half-covered in pennies. One bedroom even was wallpapered with real $1-$5 to $5 bills. After their activities, Josefina started to get dressed. Heidnik began to strangle her. She surrendered, but realized Heidnik had handcuffed her on her wrist during her struggle. He walked her to his basement, told her to sit down on a lumpy old mattress on the floor in the corner of the cellar and clamp muffler clamps to her ankles. He even superglued bolts onto the muffler clamps so she just couldn't wiggle herself out of these clamps. He then attached her to a chain that was attached to a 5-inch pipe that came out of the ceiling and ran across the room. He ordered her to lay down and when she did, Gary put his head on her naked lap and fell asleep. When she awoke, she was naked and alone. Clutching herself for warmth, she heard Gary come down the stairs. He had an egg sandwich and a glass of orange juice in hand. He offered it to her, but she refused, fearing he was poisoning her. He went back up the stairs and returned with the shovel. He started digging at a spot in the dirt in the basement, and Josefina's only thought was that this would be her grave. As he worked, he told her he had always wanted a big family, but something 
always ruined it for him. Society owes me a wife and a family, he said. I want to get 10 women and keep them here and get them all pregnant. Then when they have babies, I want to raise those children here too. We'll be one happy family. It didn't take a lot for Josefina to realize she was number one. After vigorous digging, Heidnik then proceeded to rape her and left her alone. She began working on her shackles. She was able to free her left ankle and she ran to a window in the basement and pried it open. She wiggled through the opening as much as the chain would allow and began screaming. She screamed and screamed and screamed her heart out. Unfortunately, Heidnik heard her. He tried to shove her back in the opening from the outside, but she went limp and he was unable to push her back through the window. He ran back inside to the cellar and yanked her down. He then shoved her in the pit he had just dug and put a large piece of plywood over the hole. Josephina pleaded and begged to be taken out of the hole. Enraged, Heidnik yanked her out and beat her with a stick, then threw her back in the hole. He then proceeded to put several large bags of dirt over the plywood to hold it in place. The hole was so small and crammed, her knees were to her shoulder and her head was hunched down into her knees in this tight little ball. He then turned a radio to full volume and left her like that for 27 hours. I was conscious enough to know that was a conscious act on my part and that was essentially the reason. To drown out that noise, for sure. Well, they might like a little entertainment too, you know? With the radio blasting, no one would ever hear her. When Heidink returned, Josephina heard another voice with him. I don't want to go down there. Shut up, I'm not going to hurt you. Once the new arrival was shackled as Josephina had previously been, Heidink pulled Josephina out of the hole. This is Sandy. An hour later, he returned with dinner, a handful of crackers, and bottled water. Josephina mentally kicked herself for not accepting the sandwich and the orange juice at this point. She was starving. Heidnik returned a little later and began digging again, eager to make the hole big enough for two. After some digging, he stopped and raped the two women again. The next morning, he made the women oatmeal. Breakfast was interrupted by a loud banging. <laughs> Sandy's mother and two cousins were at the door. Startled, Heidnik told Sandy to write them a letter. Dear Mom, do not worry. I will call. After he forced Sandra to sign the letter, he told her, I'm going to mail this from New York. Then your mother will think you just ran away. No one will come looking for you. Heidnik applied soundproofing material to the ceiling of the basement. He doubted neighbors would hear them with the radio playing, but he threatened them constantly that if they made any noise at all, he would beat them with the shovel and put them in the pit. If the women were being defiant, he would even put them on the stretch. And the stretch was a large eye hook that was drilled into the ceiling beams, and it was seven feet off the ground, and he would handcuff one end of the handcuff to the fish eye hook, and then the other end of the handcuff to their wrist, and he would force them to stand for hours on end with one arm raised up to the ceiling and able to sit move or lay down sandy's mother reported her missing the monday after she disappeared so about two days she told sergeant julius armstrong she suspected gary heidnick had her held captive unfortunately armstrong had received incorrect spelling for heidnick's last name from tony brown a friend of heidnick um, and i don't go into tony too much there's a lot of information about tony but this story would have been so so long if i included tony in here at the time sandra's mother had also received the letter and also showed it to armstrong the letter didn't work on her mother but it worked on armstrong armstrong later confessed on the stand after the letter arrived the case dropped priority he made no real attempts to identify heidnik and not even follow basic procedures like checking tax rolls or utility records had armstrong followed procedures and followed the correct spelling of heidnik's last name Perhaps he would have discovered Heidnik's records of previously kidnapping a woman and hiding her in his basement. And perhaps it might have saved two lives. 
On December 22nd, cruising in his Cadillac, Heidnick spotted Lisa Thomas. You want to see my Peter? I'm not a prostitute, Lisa responded angrily. He apologized and proceeded to offer her a ride. She figured he was harmless and got in the car. He dropped her off at a friend so she could pick up some gloves and waited for her outside. When she returned, he took her to TGI Fridays for food. He asked her if she would accompany him to Atlantic City. When she responded, she didn't have any clothes to wear, he gave her $50 and took her to the mall for clothing. He then asked her to try them on for her back at his house, to which she agreed, and they drove to his place. He gave her a wine cooler and popped in a movie. The drink mixed with an allergy pill she had taken at the restaurant kicked in and she fell asleep. When she awoke, she was nude. She had been carried to his room. Now, reports here don't say if he raped her or if the sex was consensual. So, when they finished, Lisa reached down for her clothing. Heineck wrapped his arms around her throat and squeezed. Wait, I'll do whatever you want, she said, surrendering. He threw handcuffs on her wrists and led her downstairs to the cellar. Heineck removed the plank from the hole in the basement, and in horror, Lisa watched Josefina and Sandy emerge from the hole in the ground. Ten days later, Heidnick was on the prowl again. He brought home Deborah Johnson Doodley. How or where he picked her up is a mystery, but she was a pain in his rear end since day one. She challenged his authority every chance she got, which good for her, you know. She wasn't taking any shit. You kidnap me, I'm gonna make your life hell, you know. As more women were introduced, a pecking order began to be established. Josephina was learning how to manipulate Heidnick. She was punished less frequently and was starting to gain Heidnick's trust, but that came at a cost for the other women involved. One of Heidnick's favorite pastimes once he got more women was picking a leader for the day. When he returned, he would ask the leader if anyone misbehaved, which resulted in the other women being punished. He would punish the women with the handle of a shovel, limit food, send them in the hole, attach them to the stretch. If Heidnick was told no one was misbehaving by the leader, he would beat her. Sometimes he would even make the other women beat the leader or the one who misbehaved. If the women weren't beating each other hard enough, Heidnick would take over or even reverse the roles of the women. So the one who was doing the beating was suddenly the one getting beat and the one who was receiving the beating was suddenly beating the other woman. It was just chaos all around and he loved it. He got off on it. It was just something he really truly enjoyed and he was he was sick. He was such a sick, sick individual. Nothing was working. I was trying to find something that worked that would make them shut up to stop. So oh, yeah. I could rest What kind of infliction of pain on these women? I was trying to find something that would make them behave. But it was painful to them. I hope so. You know, that's what I was trying to achieve, you know, to make them behave. It was weird that a day would go by without Heidnick raping one of the girls. Sometimes he would go from one to another. A quote from Seller of Horrors stated he would go from one another like a bee pollinating a flower bed until he finally climaxed or grew tired. Like I said, this book is problematic. <laughs> According to Lisa, Heidnick would later threaten them with death if they did not have sex with each other. Unfortunately, hygiene was minimal in the basement. They had a porta potty of sorts, and he provided the women with tampons, but for a large chunk of time they were not allowed to bathe. All they had to keep clean were baby wipes. One day, Lisa accidentally pulled two baby wipes, and Heidnick lost his shit and beat her with a shovel. Eventually, he gave and allowed one woman at a time upstairs to bathe, still attached to their chains, but they had to lug up the stairs and put in the tub. It was just, he couldn't even unchain them. They soaked for a few minutes in the bathtub before he would remove them from the tub and drag the woman to his bedroom where he would rape them before bringing them back down. As hygiene slightly improved, their food situation was another story. One day as he was feeding his dogs, he got an idea. 
The next time one of the women misbehaved, he went upstairs and retrieved a can of chicken-flavored dog food. And it was probably some cheap-ass can of Old Roy. Who knows? Anyways, he forced the women to eat the dog food. Eat it or take a beating, he threatened. From that point on, dog food became a regular meal. On January 18th, 18-year-old Jacqueline Askin was working in front of a motel on the north side. Unfortunately, Heidnik spotted her. As per routine, he took Jacqueline home, dragged her to the cellar, and then proceeded to hit her on the behind five times with a plastic rod. He said something stupid along the lines of, That's what you're going to get if you don't do what I tell you to do. He then hit her five more times then went to shackle her. Her ankles were so small he had to use handcuffs instead of the usual muffler cuffs. That night, piece of shit Heidnik was in a good mood. He thought Josefina and Sandy were pregnant. Thank the heavens they weren't, and even more so that none of the women, despite his efforts, ever became pregnant. Heidnik's psychiatrist would later testify in court. Heidnik became greatly depressed. He saw the women at a court hearing. He saw their flat stomachs and remarked to himself, All that for nothing. Which, fuck you and your stupid agenda, Heidnik. I hope you were miserable. Okay. Now, if you guys thought it was rough before, it's gonna get real, real rough. I'm real sorry. On February 7th, 1987, Sandy had been dangling from the struts for a week because while on the hole, she tried to nudge the plywood above her head. She refused to eat, so Heidnik extended her punishment. Since he believed she was pregnant, he shoved bread and water down her throat. She would not stop vomiting and told Heidnik she had a fever. He ignored her. One day, Josephina saw Sandy slumped. The four women started yelling at her to stand up so they could avoid more punishment. She didn't move, but Heidnik heard them yelling. He ordered her to stand up and then left again. As soon as Heidnik was gone, she went limp again. He returned again and uncuffed her. She hit the ground in a heap, and he began to kick her and kicked her into the hole. She's faking it. He turned to the other women and walked to a freezer in the cellar. He handed them ice cream, then walked up the stairs. When he finished his ice cream, he returned to check on Sandy. He dragged her out the hole, but she didn't move. He checked for a pulse. Nothing. She choked on a piece of bread, he said. With her family still searching for her, he knew he couldn't hide her body. He had to destroy it. He hoisted her body over his shoulders and walked up the stairs. A little later, the only sound the woman heard was a power saw. A few hours later, one of Heidnik's dogs, Bear, came down the stairs with a large bone in his mouth. Chunks of red meat clung to the bloody bone. A few days later, he bought a food processor. He grinded up what he could of Sandy and mixed her remains with dog food, which he then proceeded to feed to his dogs and the women held captive downstairs. Sick. Sick, sick, sick. What he didn't grind up, he placed in a freezer in the cellar that he had given the girls ice cream from. The parts he couldn't grind up, her head, hands, feet, ribcage, he tried to destroy by cooking. The smell was so awful, it flooded the neighborhood and soon neighbors were calling the police in complaint. Unfortunately, they sent a rookie cop to see what the source of the smell was in Heidnik's household. Heidnik told the rookie he had accidentally overlooked a roast, so the rookie left. I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, trying to figure out what the hell to do, you know? What the f*** to do, you know? Huh? I dismembered the body and, and I, I, you know, started burning it on the stove. Had the rookie even walked into Heidnik's house, he would have seen Sandy's body parts, you know, and maybe that would have led to these poor women being found sooner. After Sandy's death, Heidnik was beyond paranoid. He thought the women were plotting to overthrow him, which wasn't unjustified. At one point after Sandy's death, the women had come up with a plan, but before they were going to go forward with the plan, Josephina had tipped off Heidnik in an attempt to gain his trust. In an effort to keep the women from knowing when he was home and when he wasn't by the sound of his footsteps upstairs, he decided to do one of the most horrific things I have ever heard. 
One by one, he cuffed the women's arms above their heads to the ceiling. He cuffed their feet and stuffed plastic bags in their mouth as a gag. He secured the makeshift gagged with duct tape and looped an arm around their necks. As one by one, he grabbed a small, medium, and large screwdriver and gouged into their ears. He twisted the screwdriver till pus oozed out of their ears. Josefina was exempt due to proving her loyalty to Heidnick. And even through all this torture, he did damage some of the girls' hearings, but not all of them. So they just went through this awful, horrible thing for no fucking reason at all. Except because he was a paranoid piece of shit. Sometime after Sandy's death, Deborah was becoming even more extremely uncooperative. Heidnick had enough. He dragged her upstairs. When she returned, she was unusually mute. Josephina asked her what happened, and Deborah responded, He showed me Sandra Lindsay's head in a pot. And he had her ribs in a roasting pan and a bunch of her body parts in the freezer. He told me if I didn't start listening to him that that was going to happen to me. Now this only subdued her for a few days before she began to push him again. And at this point, Heidnik had discovered another torture method. Heidnik cut the plug off of an extension cord, leaving bare exposed wires. He then plugged the other end of the cord into the wall. He touched the wire to the woman's cuffs and laughed as he electrocuted the woman. For added effect, he even submerged them in water. On March 18th, everyone but Josefina was put in a hole. He then ordered Josefina to fill the hole with water. As she filled the hole with water, he drilled some holes into the plywood for air holes and slid the plywood over the women's heads. They knew what was coming. He touched the bare wire to their cuffs, and unfortunately, the wire went straight to Deborah's chains. He's killing me, she screamed. Seconds later, she was dead. You've killed her. I don't feel a pulse, Lisa screamed at Heidnick. No, nothing's wrong with Debbie. I don't want to hear that bullshit, he responded. He stopped and pulled the woman out of the hole. He dragged Deborah's body out of the hole and removed her cuffs. He left her stretched out on the concrete floor as he walked a few feet away to make the women dog food sandwiches. Aren't you glad it wasn't one of you, he smirked. That's the asshole who caused Sandra's death. Or Sandy, as I've been referring to her in the story. After making them sandwiches, he went upstairs and returned with some paper. He told Josefina to write a confession down that she had killed Deborah and made the other women sign it as a witness. He told Josefina he could use this as evidence if she ever tried to escape. He then unshackled her and told her to go upstairs and get dressed. For the first time in four months, she was unshackled and was able to get dressed for the first time. Heidnik left Deborah's body overnight before wrapping her head and feet in plastic and stuffing her in the large freezer in the cellar that he had previously pulled ice cream from. He started making plans to dispose of her body. Because no one was looking for Deborah like they were looking for Sandy, he knew that he could just get rid of her body versus having to destroy it. From March 19th to March 23rd, Heidnik began treating Josefina as a girlfriend instead of a captive. He took her on errands, out to eat, they scoped out spots to dump Deborah's body, he took her shopping. On the 22nd, just before midnight, Heidnik took Deborah out of the freezer and put her in the trunk of his old Dodge Dart, which would be less suspicious than a, you know, a white Cadillac just driving around in the middle of the night in a creepy secluded wooded area. With Josephine in the car, they left and dumped her body across the Delaware River in New Jersey. On the 23rd, he took Josephina with him to find another woman for the cellar. They spotted 24-year-old Agnes Adams, and Josephina knew her from the strip club named Hearts and Flowers, but they had both worked together. Heinick also knew Agnes. Um, he had paid her a couple times to do some activities, but he had never kidnapped her because he was really picky about the type of women he brought down to the cellar. But because Josephina knew her and it seemed like a really easy target, he went ahead and kidnapped her. They got in the car and followed the usual routine. Josefina stayed in the kitchen drinking wine coolers. That was easy. We can do that again tomorrow, he told her. 
after he had put Agnes in the cellar. Josephina just nodded. She had other plans. The next morning, Josephina finally decided to make her move. She convinced Heidnik to let her see her family because it had been over four months since she had seen them. She promised that if he allowed her to see her family, she would get another woman for him, and he agreed. If you try to run, I'll kill the others, he told her as he dropped her off four blocks away from her boyfriend's house. Her boyfriend was shocked to see her. The more she talked, the less he believed her. He told police she said that he was beating them and raping them, had them eating dead people, just like he was a cold-blood nut. Dogs was in the yard eating people's bones. I just thought she was crazy. I really didn't believe it. I still don't believe this shit. I told her I was going to go up there with a hammer and I was going to fuck him up. She said no, that might scare him and he might try to kill the other girls. As they were walking back to Heidnik's car, Josephina had second thoughts and they went to a payphone instead and dialed 911. At first, the cops didn't believe her either, but they told her to stay there and they would send someone to her location. Minutes later, officers David Savage and John Cannon pulled up. They didn't believe her either until she showed them her scars on her ankles from the chain. She told the officers where Heidnik was waiting for her. They saw him in his Cadillac and each officer took a side of the car. What's this all about? He asked them. Didn't I make my child support payment? They cuffed Heidnik and took him to the sex crime unit where Josephina was also being questioned. Is this about child support? He repeated. No, it's about the kidnapping, rape, and homicide, Officer Savage responded. On May 25th, after attaining a warrant, officers stormed Heidnik's hell house. They made their way to the cellar. There, they found two women hurled together on a mattress on the floor for warmth. The women awoke at the commotion and began screaming, Police! Sergeant Frank McClowski shouted. We're the police! We're here to help you! No one is going to hurt you! They found Agnes squatted down in the hole. She was nude, shocked, and her arms handcuffed behind her back. Lisa and Jacqueline began chanting, We're free! We're free! It's the police! I'm Jacqueline Askins. I'm one of the surviving victims. I went to sleep for a while, woke back up. Now you hear a bunch of people upstairs walking around, and you hear them start running down the steps. You just see all these different cops, detectives, and I just jumped to the cop like, oh my God, I kissed him, told him he was the, like the most beautiful thing I seen. It was a lot to endure. Then when y'all came down them steps and I seen blue and black one, my whole world just came in the palm of my hands. I, I didn't even know how to even begin to thank y'all for what y'all did for us because nobody was out there looking for me. They had to retrieve bolt cutters to remove the shackles from the woman's ankles. Savage went into the kitchen. There he found a pot covered in yellow material, an open oven with suspicious pieces of bone that looked like rib, and inside the freezer was a human forearm. Too much for Savage to handle, he ran outside to keep from vomiting. On April 2nd, Heidnik attempted suicide in a jail shower, but a guard found him in time. On April 23rd, they held a preliminary hearing for Heidnik. His attorney, Chuck Pietro, decided to go for an insanity plea. The formal charges against Heidnik were murder, rape, aggravated assault, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, indecent exposure, false imprisonment, unlawful restraints, simple assault, making terroristic threats, reckless endangerment, indecent assault, criminal solicitation, and possession and abuse of a corpse. Lisa was the first to speak of the horrors she endured. Next was Josephina. 
She recounted the entire story from her point of view, which mimicked Lisa's aside for the fact that she was the first victim. Jacqueline was next and she defended Josefina when it came to Lisa's testament that Josefina was a snitch and enjoyed beating the other women and had even given Heidnik the idea of electrocution. Jacqueline testified that she only beat them if Heidnik ordered her to, but she did back up the claim that Josefina was a snitch. Perito did everything to push the insanity plea on Heidnik. Perito had him barely showering, just wanted to make him look really scruffy, unkept, disheveled. He told him to shuffle as he walked, which that didn't take much effort since at the time Heidnik was on 300 milligrams of Thorazine from prison doctors. And Thorazine is an antipsychotic for behavioral disorders, blood disorders, and it's even used to reduce anxiety before a surgery. In the end, Heidnik was not found guilty until July 1988 and sentenced to death by lethal injection. On July 6, 1999, he was the last person to be executed in the state of Pennsylvania. The cellar of horrors was soon cemented off and the upstairs floors were turned into apartments, which are still being used today. Today, Josefina is a grandmother of six and she says she has found peace. She suffers from PTSD from these experiences and still has to sleep with the lights on. She married her longtime partner, Chris Lyle. When asked about her experience, she told reporters for the Inquirer, you don't ever totally get over an experience like that. You just have to learn to live with it. For a long time, I was haunted by Heidnik, by the woman who died next to me, but not any longer. I can hope I can inspire other victims to feel positive about the future. Jacqueline still struggles with PTSD and the aftermath of Heidnik's cellar of horrors, but she's now a mother who works cleaning houses, picks up her kids from school, and is in the process of adopting her cousin's two kids. She's focused and determined to give her children the foundation she never had. I took my innocence, but he didn't take my confidence. I wasn't going to let Heinick defeat me. I wasn't going to let him win. I put all my strength and survival course into building a new Jackie. I wasn't able to find any more information about Lisa Thomas and Agnes Atkins, but I can only hope they are doing well after the horrors they endured. And that is the story of Gary Heinick, the basement killer. I'm sorry. I know that was a rough one, but thank you guys for sitting through it. If you listened all the way to the end, I really appreciate it. Hopefully Ollie will be with us for episode 10. We'll finally be in the double digits. I'm so excited. Uh, if you need to reach us or contact us, our social is at booze podcast, B-O-O-Z podcast. You can also email us at boozepodcast at gmail.com. Um, we have a Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Send us your stories. We post all our pictures on Facebook and Instagram. So stay tuned for that. But thank you so much, and I'll see you guys next time. Bye!